Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. So this morning is our last Sunday of Advent. We've Over the last four weeks, we've been lighting one more candle each week. We started with joy and then hope, and last week was love. And this morning, we light the candle that represents peace. And each of these four things are the themes that we talk about at Advent as we come to this season together. And when we started this series and when we talked about joy, I started with this kind of concept of saying that Christmas amplifies the attitude that we bring into it. That whatever kind of attitude and approach we have as we come into Christmas— The Advent season usually amplifies that. And so we challenged ourselves, how do we choose joy? You know, and maybe it's something like the song that the kids just sang, where we find enjoyment, where we find the pieces that bring joy to the season that we're looking for. But today we're talking about peace. And one of the truths about Christmas that we all know that maybe may not be spoken all the time is that Christmas can amplify the conflicts we have in our families. And so that's the approach we're going to take today. We're going to talk about how do we find peace in family conflicts? Because let's be honest, we're all heading into family gatherings this week. Maybe you've had some already and you're like, Brian, why couldn't we have talked about this last week? But we're talking about it this week. But here's the deal. We're not doing this to air grievances. You know, there are some stories we could tell that would make our jaws drop of things that family members have done, the stories that have happened. There's a few that I have been forbidden from telling from Nikki's side of the family gatherings. Because, you know, we don't know if they'd listen to the podcast, but on the off chance they might have been forbidden from telling those ones. But that's not the point of today, because here's the deal, and we all know this. In every conflict, in every situation, we can never control what someone else does. We can only control our own actions. That's all that we have dominion over, is what we choose to do ourselves. And so that's the approach we're going to focus on today, is, is how do we find peace, starting with our own actions. And last week we ended the service with this question where we said, what does love require of me? And we challenged ourselves that in difficult situations to ask ourselves, what does love require? And so today we're going to start with a similar question. What does peace require of me? If we want to find peace in the middle of our family conflict or any type of conflict, what does it require of me to move towards peace? Because again, I can't control my family members' choices. I can't control their actions. None of us can control anyone, else other, anyone else's actions, even when they're kids. You know, we're learning that more and more every day. But what do we need to do ourselves to find peace? And so today there's three things that we're going to look at that peace requires us to do. And we're going to focus on those together. And so if we want to be a peacemaker, what are the three things that we have to do? And so the first one is quite simple. Peace requires us to find the true source of our identity. See, there's a specific reason why family conflict gets under our skin like no other conflict. Because if you have a conflict at work, you know, you can brush up your resume. You can go look for another job if the conflict gets that bad that you need to leave. If you, know, if you end up with a conflict in your neighbor, you, know, you just don't leave your house at the same time. And you can just ignore them. But family, you can't just ignore. Or maybe you've been successful at that, but usually it doesn't work out the way you want it to. See, our families have this specific way that they get under our skin, and that's the fact that oftentimes our source of identity comes from our family, and that's usually a good piece. But sometimes it turns a little, well, not so great. See, our families know our flaws and our pasts very well. 
And so I want to tell you a story that this, I, I think I was about eight when the first one happened and probably about 10 when the second one happened. But my uncle has a farm near Oak Lake, and we spent a lot of time out at the farm together there. And like any good farm and any good amount of kids when you hang out together, we start wanting to put engines on things and drive them fast, right? That's what we do. So when I was about eight, the first go-kart was built. And the first go-kart did about 30 miles an hour. It was pretty quick, a little small one, rear engine. And of course, I was, I'm the youngest out of all the cousins on that side of the family. So like... I'm, I'm trying to play catch up. Like they're all faster than me. They're all stronger than me. And I'm thinking the go-kart, you know, I'm the lightest. I'm the smallest. I should be the fastest on it, right? Like I, I ought to be. That's, this is the one thing, you know, my strength and my speed doesn't count because it's driving skill. And so the, I kind of, I don't think they really wanted me to start driving the go-kart yet because they probably thought I was still too young for this. And so sure enough, the first time they, they let me go in the go-kart and my, uh, my uncle's lane, there's the shop, the lane's about a quarter mile and you have to turn around on the mile road and come back. And uh, as I was going up towards there, I got a little scared of going onto the mile road because it's kind of blind on each side. I didn't know if there was a vehicle coming. So I just thought, well, I'll just turn around a little earlier. Problem, turning radius, the go-kart is a little larger than the width of the lane. And so the first time, like I've driven this thing 40 seconds and I ditched it. Like I got to there, I kind of was like, which way do I go? I tried to turn and I just went straight in the ditch. And of course I couldn't get out of the ditch. And so they had to come and haul me out of the ditch. And, you know, that kind of became this running joke. Anytime, you know, we take turns driving the go-kart. Anytime I got into it, it's, hey, Brian, watch out for that ditch. It's coming for you. Every single time. And then as the older cousins got bigger, this little go-kart wasn't big enough. And so a second go-kart was built that was uh, more powerful, but it was geared so they'd have the same top speed. Because, you know, our, our parents and my, my dad and my uncle wanted these go-karts to be evenly matched, because now we got races going on, right? So the bigger go-kart, I kind of pushed them, like, well, I want to drive the big go-kart. You know, the little go-kart's fun, and, and they're the same speed, but I want to drive the big one. I want to prove myself. I want to redeem myself for this ditch incident. So... I, I, you know, I, I was fairly talkative as a kid. I, I convinced them that even though I, like, I couldn't actually see over the steering wheel, I had to look through the steering wheel, I convinced them to let me drive it. Some of you might know where this is going, so you may have heard this story before. But sure enough, you know, I, I take the go-kart, I go down the lane, and I don't ditch it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced I am not going to ditch this go-kart. So I turn around, and I come up, and I spin it out on the lane. And... The, the difference between the two go-karts is the first one had a direct link steering. So I know I'm getting a little mechanical here, but what it means is if you turned the steering wheel that far, that was full lock to full lock. Like that was your whole range of steering. The bigger go-kart had steering like a car where it's two turns to hit full lock. So I spun the go-kart out. I'm facing the yard where a piece of uh, my uncle's harrow bar is parked. That's going to become really important in a second. And I turned the wheel that far because that's full lock, right? No. And I dumped it. I just dumped the clutch and went. And this go-kart does not turn. It goes straight into the harrow bar. I ripped the front tire clean off the go-kart. And of course, there's no seatbelt. There's no airbags. I can't see through over the steering wheel. So what happens to me is I'm holding the steering wheel. My chin hits the bottom of the steering wheel. And there is a 9 sixteenths or 7 eighths bolt in the center of the steering wheel holding it on. Guess where that bolt goes? 
right to my forehead. I had the three marks of a hexagonal bolt on my forehead for several months after that. (laughs) See, I wanted so badly to prove myself, and both go-karts, first day out, I crashed them. So what do you think happens when I turn 16 and I get my learner's license? What do you think happens? O'Brien, watch out for that ditch. You know, we'd be driving, and like my cousin in the back seat would be like, oh, look, there's a harrow bar. It's two miles on that field. Don't hit it. It's like, I know. I'm not going to hit it. See, every single time I got behind the wheel, someone said at least, don't hit the ditch. Don't hit the harrow bar. Don't hit the ditch. Don't hit the harrow bar. Like over and over again. See, our families remember all those things. Our families sometimes have a hard time letting each other grow up. That even though, like, I have never crashed a go-kart, you know, I'm a good driver, I've never had issues with that since, every time that came back. And see, for me, I felt like every time I got behind the wheel, I had to prove to them I'm not the eight-year-old kid that crashed the first go-kart. I'm not the 11-year-old that crashed the the big go-kart. See, I had to do to deal with this because even though it was all good-natured teasing, it bugged me. Like, it really ate at me every time those comments came out. You know how we all have those kind of like those, that button, that one thing, that one piece that when a family member says it, it just, it makes you irrationally upset. Like, I should have been able to just brush it off, but it bothered me. And see, it took a long time for me to realize that my identity didn't have to be based on what my family said about my ability to drive go-karts. You know, and you think, yeah, of course you should know that, Brian, you know. Well, it took me a while to figure it out. See, when our identity is based on our past, when our identity is based on on our mistakes, you know, I had to do business with that. I had to deal with the fact that my identity was, I need to prove myself. See, that's really what was underneath. It wasn't about crashing the go-karts. You know, dad and uncle fixed them. It wasn't a problem. The issue underneath was I had to prove myself. Being the youngest of the family, being the smallest of the cousins, I'm still the smallest of the cousins. They're all giants on that side of the family. It's really intimidating. But I had this piece of me that, that craved, I have to prove myself. And see, if my identity is shaped by needing to prove myself, That means I've always got to compete. I've always got to push harder. I've always got to, you know, overcome the years that I'm younger than my cousins. And I have to deal with that. See, it took me until later in my teenage years, actually, to realize this, that my identity didn't have to be based on proving myself to my cousins. My identity didn't have to be focused on my ability to not crash go-karts anymore. See, it's natural to base our identity on, on our families and what they say for us. But our identity, who we are, who we understand ourselves to be, needs to be bigger than what our family's perception of us is. See, there's a story from the Old Testament that illustrates this really well, and we're going to talk about it. And this happened a thousand years before Jesus was born. And at this time in Israel's history, Saul is the king. There's this time period where there was three kings when the nation of Israel was joined together, and then they split in half after the third king. But Saul was the first of those three kings. And Saul was chosen purely by appearance. He was chosen to be king because he looked like someone who should be king. He wasn't chosen for his ability. He wasn't chosen for his faithfulness to God. He was chosen because this dude looks like a king. He's tall. You know, the, basically what scripture tells about is, you know, he was a full head taller than everyone. He was handsome. He was liked. 
So he became king. But Saul, because those were the reasons why he was chosen to be king, he wasn't a good king. And so after times and time again of him messing up and leading the people astray, God told the prophet Samuel, it's time to make a change. And so God tells the prophet Samuel this. He says, the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a, name, find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I've selected one of his sons to be my king. See, Bethlehem is important. Not only a thousand years before, but a thousand years later, because Jesus' family line gets traced back to Bethlehem and to the son that's going to get chosen in a moment. And so Samuel goes to Bethlehem. He finds Jesse. He prepares a sacrifice and a feast, and he invites Jesse and his sons. And so if we jump ahead to verse 6, when Jesse and his sons arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab, he was the oldest son, and said, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Samuel thinks this oldest son, you know, the oldest son carried the birthright and the largest share of the inheritance. You know, this was their culture. The oldest son had the most rights. And so the oldest son, Eliab, comes and Moses, Samuel looks at him and says, this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so what happens is Samuel says, no, Eliab is not the Lord's anointed. And so Jesse's a little confused. And so he pulls his second son up and Samuel says, no. And then he pulls the next son up and they go through all of Jesse's sons and the Lord does not say that one of those is. And so Samuel looks at Jesse and says, well, God said no to all these sons. Are you sure you don't have another son? And Jesse says, well, wait, we do have one more. I have one more son that I didn't bring to the feast. And that's the youngest. His name is David. And he's out in the fields with the goats. And so Samuel says, go and get him. We're not going to eat until your son David is here. And so when David appears, when David comes in, God speaks to Samuel and says, that is the next king of Israel. He is the one to be anointed. And so as David stood there amongst his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. See, David was the youngest. He was the smallest. When the prophet of God comes to have a feast with your family, Jesse didn't even call him in from the fields. He says, of course, it's going to be my oldest sons. It's not going to be David. See, David had this reputation already amongst his family. It's clear, you know, he's the youngest. He's, going to, he's not going to amount to much. He's just going to take care of the animals and that's it. And when Samuel comes and he asks, he's there on a mission to appoint the next king of Israel. He's the one that gets chosen. Why? Because his heart was tender. Because his heart was soft. Because he desired to follow God. You know, scripture later on describes David as a man who's after God's own heart. That he spent his life devoted to God. Now David had his flaws and he had his problems that came later on down the road. But the difference and the piece that I want us to focus on is David's identity according to his family was you're the one that looks after the goats. And when this big event happens, we're not even going to call you in from the field. You'll get to hear about it later. 
but he was the one who God knew had a specific calling and a specific purpose. See, what does peace require of me? Peace requires us to see, to find our identity, how God sees us. It requires us to find who we are by how God sees us, not by how our family sees us. So for me, I had to come to this point where I actually needed to realize that I have this piece of me that just craves, I have to prove myself. And I had to let go of that. I had to consciously forgive my family, even though all the teasing was good-natured and they did it because they liked me and like that's, that's, that's how families are. I had to forgive them because it was the only way that I could start releasing that piece of identity and instead focus on the identity that God wants me to have. See, peace requires us to find our identity and how God sees us. We are not defined by what our families say about us. We're defined by how God sees us. And so maybe you need to take some time to focus on what David did and, and focus on, so how do we choose to start seeing ourselves the way God sees us? How do we choose to see the characteristics and the purpose and the, the traits and the gifts and the talents that God's given us and see that as the core of who we are rather than what our families might say? See, peace requires us to find our identity in how God sees us. That's the first piece. Now, the second piece The second part when we're talking about family conflict is this one. Peace requires us to focus on what's truly important. Now, when I say that, you might be thinking, well, you've got to decide if a topic is is worth talking about. And yes, you do. But this isn't about deciding how important a topic is. See, most of the time, when we look at this, we have this, this conversation in our minds and we say, okay, is this important enough? Is this issue big enough? And what that leads to is when you get into a conversation with someone, and maybe it's about one of those, you know, hot button topics, you can figure out what it is. Maybe it's politics, maybe it's, you know, what so-and-so did at the last family gathering, or, or whatever it is. Whatever that piece is, you probably all know that one topic where when it comes up at the dinner table, everyone goes, oh, here we go again. You know, whenever that topic comes up, usually we treat those as me versus you. We treat that as, I have my perspective and you have your perspective, and we're going to hash this out until one of us wins. We're going to hash this out until one of us takes charge. One of us gets called the winner, and the other person feels like the loser in that. See, what that leads to is us having an adversarial approach to our conversations. But when I say that peace requires us to focus on what's truly important, what it means is that we have to see the people as more important than the issue. Is the person you are sitting across from at the dinner table talking with, are they more important to you than whatever the issue is that you're wrestling and working through? Is the person more important than the issue? Because if we recognize that the person is more important, we can shift our conversation. Instead of it being me and my perspective versus you and your perspective, we can shift that and say, okay, it's you and me together and there's this issue that we're dealing with. There's this topic, there's whatever it is. See, what that does instantly, if you can both take that mindset that, no, it's about you and me together figuring out this issue. So, I'm going to use a really uh, frivolous example. How many of you are team crunchy peanut butter? How many of you are team smooth peanut butter? How many of you are on my team and say peanut butter is just disgusting and you shouldn't touch it? Okay, I got one. I got one. You and me, we're together on this. But here's the deal. Does it matter? (laughs) Someone just say yes. (laughs) 
Okay. That threw me. That's awesome. Thank you for saying that. See, here's the deal. If you... uh, (laughs) Okay, let's put it this way. Maybe, let's say, for example, your spouse is team smooth and you're team crunchy. Which jar of peanut butter do you actually have in your pantry? Do you have (laughs) both? You know, is that the compromise? See, is it me versus you? Is it, you know, me and Team Smooth versus you and Team Crunchy? You know, I, I know, like, Nikki knows this. My perspective would be that there's no peanut butter in a house, period. That would be my preference. But here's the problem. If I instantly say, well, part of my identity, let's go back to the, our first part. If part of my identity is that I hate peanut butter and it disgusts me to have it in the house, I like walk in the door and I'm like, you bought peanut butter on that grocery trip, didn't you? Like, no, I don't have that sort of a sense. But if we turn this into a me versus you, if you turn this into an argu- to a combat of argument, what happens? One of you gets their way and the other doesn't. See, instantly, though, if you're able to say, no, you and me together need to make a decision about this, what jar of peanut butter will we buy? And maybe that solution is you buy both. Go for it. Again, I said this is a frivolous example, so the importance kind of falls apart on it. But if you're able to say, no, we need to discuss this together, and so maybe you have the compromise, you know, when that jar's empty, then we're going to crunchy for a jar, and then when that jar's empty, we're going to... Whatever. Anyways... But the point I'm getting at, and I hope you followed with me on this, is that if we choose to see people as more important than the issue, it means that we can work together, even if we disagree with each other, we can work together to deal with an issue. And there's a term for that. It's called contending with an issue instead of being in conflict with each other. Because conflict is adversarial. It means it's me versus you. Contending means it's we have an issue and we're working to solve it. So if you take peanut butter out of the equation and you look at maybe something more, a bigger problem, you look at something like, you know, whose family is hosting Christmas. Or maybe if you're at this point where you're like, okay, well, we can only visit one set of in-laws this Christmas because they live in different provinces. You know, which one are we going to visit? You know, when there's an issue like that, is it me and my family versus you and your family? Or is it, okay, what are we going to do together as a family? How do we make the issue a separate thing rather than the issue part of each other's identity? That's what it means to contend with an issue. And see, when we see people as more important, see, if we reframe the conflict to be about the issue we're both dealing with instead of focusing it on the other person, that's what contending is. That's what peace requires. And if we go, there's two verses in Scripture that we're going to read together quickly, and they both come from letters to the, in the New Testament that Paul was writing to churches that were in conflict, to churches that were having difficulty and issues. And this is the advice that Paul gives in two different places. In Romans 12, 18, he says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So what he instantly is saying in that is he's saying that peace is more important than the issue. Now, sometimes it may not be possible to get to peace. You know, if that peanut butter war, you know, really blows up and gets out of proportion, you have to stop and ask yourself, am I doing everything I can to live at peace with each other? And when you do that, you start realizing this second verse matters quite a bit. Where in Ephesians 4 verse 2, Paul says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Now, I love this church dearly, and I love you all, and I can make an allowance for your fault that you like peanut butter. 
Okay, I can let that go. That's what it means to be humble and gentle. I can't even say it with a straight face because it's such a... Anyways, but here's the point. Here's what we're getting at. If we want to find peace, do we allow people to make mistakes? Do we allow people to have faults? Do we allow people to crash the go-kart and not razz them about it forever? See, if we can do that, if we can see people as more important than the issue, that moves us towards peace. That moves us towards family gatherings that are actually joyful, that don't have this air of tension in the background. But here's the thing. Contending is not easy. This is not an easy step to do. Contending with the issues requires us to see people as more important than the issue. And so this Christmas, if you're at a family gathering and you know, one of those topics comes up that you dread and you're like, oh no, this is going south fast, you've got to stop yourself. What does peace require of me? It requires me to see my identity the way God sees me and it requires me to see the person as more important than the issue. That's the first two. Now let's move to the third Peace requires us to set healthy boundaries. And this one's kind of tough because a lot of us have issue with a little word that's very important and that little word is no. So I I want you to practice it. Hey, can you do something for me? See, it's not that hard. See, when you say no, when you set a boundary, what it means, a boundary says, you know, this is a line I'm not going to let you cross. It means I'm not going to put my spiritual health and my mental health, I'm not going to set that aside to do what it is you want me to do or to have that conversation you want. And this is the part that's challenging. But don't compromise your spiritual and your mental health to appease a family member. See, here's the thing. If you're able to say no to something and say, you know what, they ask you to do something, you're like, you know what, that's just too much, I can't do that. I mean, first you've got to look at last week. You know, what does love require of me? Am I just being way too guarded? Am I just being way too protective? Am I just saying no because I want to? But if they're asking you to do something, they're saying, you know, we really want you to come out and visit, and you're like, well, you know what, we just can't. Like, we, we just, we're not going to be able to. Or if, you know, the, let's, you know, if, if the, the outspoken family member who, is really on the opposite side of the political spectrum as you are, and they want to have a debate over the dinner table, you can say, no, I'm not having that debate, especially not here. See, having a healthy boundary is about setting essentially good fences. I mean, we've all heard the phrase, good fences make good neighbors. You know, your neighbor has their property, you have your property, you can respect each other when that boundary is well-defined. Now, if you have an issue with your neighbor and, uh, you know, you come home and you find they moved your fence over on you, you know, that's a problem, isn't it? See, a a boundary is just like a fence. And we understand this when we deal with property. We struggle to understand this when when we're talking about our own mental health and our own spiritual health. But if we want to find peace, we have to have boundaries. If we want to have peace, we need to know what the limits are of when something is asked that's too much of us. But when you set a boundary, it's not about actually just saying no. A boundary is about what are you doing instead. See, if you are saying no to something, if you know the family gatherings are just becoming too much, just too often, you're like, you know what, I need a day to relax. I need a day at home. I need an evening with nothing on. And I know some of you are like us where you know, we had like, 
two weeks ago, we had the week where it felt like there was something on every single evening. You know, and it, it was, they were all good things. And this is the tough part. It's, even, it's easy to say no to something when you don't want to do it. It's hard to say no when it's something you want to do. But we had a week where every single night of the week we had either a Christmas party or we were out with some friends. And, you know, after day four, I'm just wiped. And Nikki's wiped and the kids are exhausted because we put them to bed super late every night this week. You know, they were all good things, but really we looked back at it and went, yeah, we kind of, you know, shot ourselves in the foot with that schedule. Who, who came up with that plan? Us. We did. It's our own fault. But when you set a boundary, if you say no to something, you have to choose what you're going to say yes to instead. Because anytime you say yes to someone else's agenda for you, you're saying no to something else. And so if you say no, they're like, hey, we want you to come out, and you say no, what are you going to do with that time? And see, Jesus demonstrated this through his ministry. In Luke six twelve, and again in Matthew 14, verse 23, these are just two of the examples of times when Jesus left the crowds and left his disciples and went away to have time privately to pray. One day, soon afterwards, Jesus went up to a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. He went off by himself. In Matthew 14, after sending the home, them home, sending the disciples and the crowds away, Jesus went up to the hills by himself to pray. And this is what's simple. If Jesus needed to set boundaries and take some personal time to pray, then so do you. You know, we can't look at Jesus and say, well, I don't need to take time to care for myself. I don't need to take time to recharge. I don't need to take time to rest. Well, Jesus did. And if Jesus did, then we certainly do. See, what does peace require of us when we're in a family conflict? It requires three things. Peace requires us to find our identity in how God sees us, rather than being defined by what other people say about us. Peace requires us to see that people are more important than the issue. And peace requires us to set healthy boundaries so that we can flourish. See, all of these things, when we take them together, when we seek peace first, that's when we start to experience God in deeper and deeper ways. When we're not running on empty all the time, that's when we're actually able to connect with God and when we're able to actually see when, you know, when, when we, if we go back to last week and say, what does love require of us? When we have margin in our lives because we've focused on peace, then we actually have the space to show love to one another. When we have good, healthy boundaries and when we know and we understand, we also know when the timing is right and we can actually push those and we can run harder for a season if we know we have a season of rest coming up. And that's kind of what Christmas feels like, doesn't it? We've all been running extra errands and extra issues and extra you know, family gatherings and all this. And you might be thinking already, man, I just want to get to, to January. Where are you focusing on peace? Where are you finding rest? Where are you focusing on a little bit of self-care and a little bit of, of making sure you're not overwhelming yourself? Because Jesus came to bring peace. In fact, one of the terms, one of the names used in the book of Isaiah in the promise that Jesus would come was that he would be the Prince of Peace. And for Joseph and Mary, we talked about this uh, in our first message about joy, that it was not a very joyful time for them. They were living under the oppression of a foreign nation. With Mary being nine months pregnant, they had to travel back to Bethlehem because that was David's city, because they were both descendants of David. So they go back there, and they're overwhelmed. 
And they might have been wondering and thinking about this promise from the book of Isaiah that Jesus would be the Prince of Peace and saying, well, where's peace in this? thing is, peace doesn't just happen on its own. Peace has to be made. And peace takes effort to make it happen. But when we get there, when we find peace, that's when we're able to hope. That's when we're able to love. That's where we're able to have joy. Because if we're all running at the end of our rope, there is no peace. And so this question that I want to ask you to dwell with this Christmas season is, what does peace require of me? So if you're in a situation where you're like, this is getting tense, this is becoming one of those family conflicts, this is becoming that moment we're going to talk about at future family gatherings, stop yourself. What does peace require of me? So sometimes it's okay to say, no, we're not talking about that tonight. We're not talking about that here. You know, no, we're not able to do that. You know, no, I'm not exactly who I was 20 years ago. See, one of the challenges with the identity piece is, is our families sometimes struggle to let us grow up. Because when my cousins and my uncles and my aunts look at me, you know, yes, I'm Brian, I'm 30 years old, but they also see Brian, the 8-year-old, that crashed the go-kart. See, sometimes our families struggle to let go of that. So if we are able to source our identity in who God says we are, if we're able to see people as more important than the issue, And if we're able to set healthy boundaries, that's where we'll find peace. So let me close with a word of prayer for you. God, I pray that we would find peace. That even though this is a busy season, that in the midst of this all, you would show us your peace. I pray that we would be peacemakers in our gatherings, that we would search for peace. Because in peace, we're able to truly show love. In peace, we're able to truly find joy and truly find hope. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of this question. What does peace require? Whenever we're in a situation where we can feel our stress levels rising, would you draw us towards peace instead of indulging our anger? Would you draw us towards love instead of getting upset and burnt out? And Lord, this season... Would you draw us back to these themes because we recognize that you are in them and that as we search for peace, for love, for hope, and for joy, that's where we find you. In your name we pray, amen. Folks, I just want to echo what Mac was saying before. I really hope you're here for Christmas Eve. Um, You can still reserve a free ticket online right up until when uh, our Christmas Eve service starts. So again, tomorrow night, 6 o'clock, plan to be here. I hope you have a great Christmas, everyone. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.